Uh, my name is Steve, and it is my privilege and honor to get a chance to share with you something God has been teaching me for the last couple years. Um, if you don't recognize me, that's okay. Uh, my family and I, were pretty new here, and we've lived in Kashmir now for just about two years. Earlier this summer, I had the chance to preach in the gym class series and loved that. Thank you uh, for that opportunity. And then uh, opportunity came up again before they do some kickoff stuff in the for the fall to be able to speak again, and so uh, I'm thrilled I could do that. I want to welcome you all to Christ Center. I want to welcome those online who are listening as well. I learned something from, this, from my sermon this summer. I like to walk across the stage. You're projected. Uh, that doesn't work. So today I'm going to try and stand here, and if that doesn't work and I get a chance to preach again someday, we'll just move the drummer's cage up here. And I will be contained. I'll just bump into things so I don't go all over the place. Uh, again, my name is Steve. My family and I have been here a couple years. Um, we went through a, a big change. I'm not going to tell you a lot about it. But just so you know, the passage I'm going to be teaching from today is one that God has for years put on my heart as one that it's like he's been preaching it in my head uh, over and over and over again. And in the last couple years, uh, especially, I went from being a teaching pastor at a church in Corvallis for 11 years uh, to being a seasonal cherry inspector uh, while I was trying to buy some time over the summer to working in Martin's Marketplace uh, while I was uh, starting to get ready to go back to Central Washington University, get a master's in teaching. And now I am a middle school teacher at uh, Pioneer Middle School. And yeah, go Pioneer! Woo! Uh, in, uh, in Wenatchee. So just, there was a lot, we're going to talk some about identity this morning. There was a lot of identity stuff that I had to work through uh, in that time of leaving the trajectory I thought my life was going onto this new whole track of who am I and what am I doing and where am I going. So uh, if you would, if you have a Bible, if you could open up to the Gospel of John chapter 13. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you, if you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't and you have a phone, you should get an app that has the Bible on it. Then you can get out your phone and you can look up John 13 on your phone. Uh, I'm going to go through the first five verses. And in going through those verses, hopefully you will be able to see with me uh, the incredible power that comes to us as we begin to understand truly and deeply who we are in Christ, and how that, like it did with Jesus, allows us to then serve other people, even in ways that may be sacrificial and hard, All right? The main point this morning, the main topic we're going to be going through is the significance of our identity to living a strikingly compelling, redemptively powerful, loving life of sacrificial service. Okay, that's, that's the theme. That's the big idea today. To the extent that you can know who you truly are, you will be able to live a strikingly compelling, redemptively powerful, loving life of sacrificial service. I'll say it a little bit differently. To the extent you see yourself clearly is the extent to which you will serve others deeply. If you see clearly you serve deeply. Now, a disclaimer, uh, I did tell you I was a pastor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a philosopher. So I did no study on the key elements that go into building a self-identity. I don't know what they are. 
Uh, I'm not interested in them. I kind of am interested in them. But I'm far more interested in, in what happened with Jesus knowing himself and how that resulted in Jesus doing something beautiful and amazing. And so I think that we'll be able to look at this passage and say, if Jesus was actively knowing and aware of these things about himself and it let him do this, if I really know those same things about myself, I'm going to be able to do what God's calling me to do somewhere else. So we're not going to dig deeply into what it is to have your self-identity. And uh, we're just going to look at four things that Jesus knew, that he saw clearly about who he was. Because I truly believe if we see those things, it'll change us too. Like it freed Jesus to do stuff. Uh, the other, just kind of by way of disclaimer, this is going to be like 50,000 foot. Um, I have four points and not a lot of time. So we're not going to dig deep into any of these. Um, I'm going to trust that God may have something to speak to you as you leave and you spend time talking with him about what he wants to say. And by the way, as soon as you hear something from God, you can tune me out. Uh, his voice is way more important this morning than mine. So if God starts pulling on your heart about something in here, go ahead and quit listening to me and, uh, and listen to him. Let me pray and then we'll get started reading John 13. Verses 1 through 5. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this day that you have come uh, to meet with us. I know, I trust, I believe uh, that you have something to say to the people here you love so dearly. And I know you've had something and you keep having something to say to me in this passage. So would you please teach through me the things you've been teaching me, would you teach your people here? so that we could live these strikingly powerful lives of service, beautiful examples of Christ's love in action in the places and around the people you have put us to serve. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read John 13, the first five verses. And what I want you to do as I'm reading is I want you to pay attention to the four things that Jesus knew about himself and what that knowledge freed him up to do next. Oh, I need to. Tease me, I'm getting older. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, knowing, led to Jesus doing. Jesus knowing about who he was led to Jesus doing something that was unthinkable at the time. It even is kind of strange for us. And we wear shoes and socks. They wore sandals. Right? We have pretty clean streets. They had dusty, dirty roads full of animal leftovers. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, 
started washing people's feet. And something I just noticed as reading it is he started, he washed their feet and then he dried them with the towel, which means he was using his hands, most likely, when he was washing their feet. Right? What an incredible act of selfless service, which is symbolic of a greater act that he connects it to. Eventually, he's not just going to wash their feet, he's going to wash their soul. Right? And not by washing their feet with his hands in water, but by washing the sin Uh, the penalty and guilt and shame and dirtiness of our lives away by his sacrificial gift of his death. That washing, all of that act of service came about because he knew something. So let's look at the four things that Jesus knew about himself. That I think as we've come to wrestle with these and come to understand them, they will free us up to live this life of service. This is the first one that I saw. So the first thing Jesus understood is he understood his situation. In verse 1, we read that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that word knowing, it's a very kind of specific word. The reason this stood out to me, it's almost incidental in the passage, is that he says the same thing four times, exact same word, right? It, it's a perfect aorist participle. doesn't mean much of anything to you other than the fact it's an ongoing active sense of awareness that Jesus has And the idea of knowing is actually the root of seeing. It's just used now kind of metaphorically, not about physical sight, but about an awareness. Jesus had an active, ongoing awareness of the significance of who he is. And that ongoing, active, front-of-the-mind awareness is what moved him to do something. And the first thing Jesus had this active, ongoing awareness of was his situation. Because John writes for us that Jesus was knowing that his hour had come. So, situation comes from the idea of hour. Hour in the Bible rarely ever speaks to a 60-minute period of time. The hour that it's talking about is his, his situation in life. It's an era. It's like an epic, right? And there was an earlier moment in Jesus' ministry when he was in a town called Cana at a wedding where he had said to his mom, my hour has not yet come. Now, right before the Passover, right before he gives his life, right, as a sacrifice for our sins, Jesus says, now my hour has come. He has a situational awareness of what is going on in the world in God's redemptive working plan. It hadn't come. Now it had come. What was promised, and we saw building, is now in fulfillment with Jesus. What was symbolic is now going to become substance. What was a wish is going to become a hope full of sight. The story was now going to move. A hinge was going to swing, and Jesus was situationally aware this was going to happen. He himself was going to become the door through which and by whom we can now have relationship with God again and God's kingdom work and spread throughout the world uh, and we can be reconciled with God. We can have our sins forgiven. All that was going to happen. That hour was now coming and had come. And that situational awareness, I think, empowered Jesus to be able to see what was happening in the world around him in a different way so that when it came to him having to give up of himself, he could do it. Jesus realized that the situation in which he lived was a situation in which people are broken. It was a situation in which people were lost and vandalized by sin and defiled by sin. 
and hurting and broken and foolish, and they needed to be rescued. That was the situation in which Jesus saw himself. So when he looked at people, he looked at them with compassion and care and concern. Jesus saw that people needed grace. That's the situation. The situation, how do you see the situation we're in? How do you see the situation you're We're still in a situation of grace. I need grace. <laughs> you need grace. We all need God's grace. His unmerited, loving, saving presence with us. We need God's grace. We live in a broken, vandalized, deformed, and yet beautiful and amazing creation filled with broken, vandalized, hurting, lost, foolish people like us. And we need God's grace to set us right. We need God's grace to help us and bring healing and, uh, and, and cleansing and, and forgiveness. We need grace. People who are messed up by sin can now find forgiveness. People who are defiled and ashamed can find purification. People who are enslaved can find freedom. People who are lost can be found. People who are estranged can be reunited. People who are burdened can find rest because Jesus' hour has come. And we're in that situation. We're in that moment of redemptive history on the other side of the cross in the grave and the resurrection. We have a message for them. That's the situation. So here's where I think the challenge becomes. Because remember, I'm a middle school teacher, right? So I get to look out five days a week, and I get to look at people who need a lot of patience. And I can think, man, if you guys would just get it together. Or I can think they're lost. <laughs> they're confused. They're broken. Right? When Jesus was tired of doing ministry, he wanted to get away on a mountainside and he wanted to pray and have a quiet time and rest. And 5,000 people showed up. <laughs> and you know what he did? He looked at them with compassion and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He knew his situation he was in. Right? To the extent that we know the situation, to the extent that we can clearly see God's grace and how much we need it. It's the extent that we're going to be able to clearly give God's grace to others around us. We need to see clearly our situation. We live in a time where God's grace is available to those who need it, including us. And so when we interact with people, we have an opportunity to serve. Remember, the God who gave you great grace is the God who's asking you to give great grace to the other people around you. So there's the first thing. Jesus saw his situation. He also saw, if you go down to verse 3, we get these next three, kind of right in a row, these, these three like bang, bang, bang. Jesus knew, the second thing, he knew that his father had given all things into his hands. Ongoing, constant, front-of-the-mind awareness of who he is. He is the person to whom God had given, a gift, all things into his hands. Right? That statement, all things into his hands, speaks about his authority, his position, his title, right? God the Father gave him a designation. You are the one into whom all hands I have given authority. You're the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. That's who you are, right? He gives him a position. And since God gave him that position, since it came from an external to him, it's something that is immensely secure. So no one's going to take that away from him. 
God the Father gave that to the Son. He bestowed, he conferred upon Jesus a name. Now, I don't want to get too far into this, but I want you to see the significance of the external. God the Father gave to the Son the role. Why? Because we live in a culture that is obsessed with I doing something for myself. I define myself. I create myself. I name myself. Right? I get to express myself. I'm the one who knows who I truly am. The reality is you don't. Nobody does. We don't have the power to name ourselves, create ourselves, modify. We we are dependent on external voices to name us and define us and tell us who we truly are. We're, we are way too nearsighted to get that right. If you don't believe me, watch America's Got Talent. Right? You'll find some 65-year-old who says, I'm an accountant, but deep down inside, I know I'm a singer. And they go on stage, and you're like, no, you're not. Somebody needs to tell you this. That's not who you are. Right? We need someone to name us, to tell us, to 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 bestow on us a position. And you get it. You get that. God gives you a name. God gives you a position. God gives you standing. Right? One of the stories I love about Jesus and what he did, there was a woman who was uh, crippled by a spirit. I don't know exactly what that means, but she would... She seemed to be hunched over, and some kind of like physical expression of a spiritual bondage was going on in her life, and she was, she was crippled, and Jesus healed her on a Sunday. Well, it would have been a Saturday, on a Sabbath. Made the religious leader of the synagogue mad. The religious leader doesn't necessarily talk about the woman who was just healed, but gets mad at Jesus for doing something on a traditional day you don't do anything. And Jesus says... Why would you stop me from healing this daughter of Abraham? Okay, now, he's not even necessarily talking to the woman, though in my mind I want to believe he's looking at her because I don't think he really cares that much about the religious leader. He cares about the woman he's dealing with. Do you hear what he called her? Jesus called the woman who was in bondage and crippled by a spirit who would have been ostracized from the community. He named her. He designated her. You are a daughter of Abraham. You belong here, right? Jesus put that on her. Jesus named her into community. He named her back into a people. He gave her a place, right? And God does that for you too. He does that for me too, right? God gives us this name. So I want to do an experiment with you. I want you to think about this. When I say I am a you respond with. Now, don't say dad, because one of my kids is out there, right? I'm not talking about me, what you think I am. Who are you? Your self-talk, right? When yourself says, I am a, what gets filled in? For some of you, it's probably healthy. For some of you, I'm going to venture and say maybe it's not. I am a what? I am a awesome person. <laughs> I'm awesome. I am capable of anything. I am whoever I want to be. I am beautiful just the way I am. Right? You know what? Some of those things might be true. I think there's a danger for some of us. We have an overinflated sense of self-esteem. But I think my heart really goes out to people maybe like that daughter of Abraham. And when I say, what do you hear when the words I am go through your head? And what you, you hear is I am a loser. I am ugly. I am unwanted. 
never going to amount to anything. Incompetent, a nuisance, a disappointment, a screw-up. I'm a failure. I am not loved. See, some of you, you got that name tag stuck on you. Somebody said it, somebody's voice, somebody's face, somebody put that marker on you, and that's the one that you're hearing. When I say you see it, you perceive it, the act of awareness, that's the act of awareness that's running through your head. And you need to change it. <laughs> and you'll say, but Steve, you don't know how loud it is. You have no idea this voice that shouts at my soul who I am. I say, but friend, you don't understand. You don't understand the power of God's whisper is greater than the shout of any person. And here's who God says you are. You are my beloved child. I chose you. I loved you. I am with you. I will never leave you. And I will make you into something beautiful and glorious. That's who you are. John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. To all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in Jesus' name, God gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor of the desire or will of man, but born of God. You see your position? You're a child of the king of the universe. And that can't ever be taken away from you. If you know that, you can serve anybody. That's not a threat to your ego or identity anymore. What's somebody going to take away from you? You already know who you are. There's two. Third thing Jesus saw. He saw his commission. He was actively aware that he had been sent by God. John 13.3 says, well, it doesn't say. I'm filling in the verbal forms here for you. Knowing that he had come from God. Knowing that he had come from God. It's not an ontological statement about Jesus being. That's a pipe and beer question we can talk about some other time. This is way simpler than that. Don't overthink it. Jesus was sent by the Father to do a mission. He came with purpose, and that purpose was to be the redeeming agent by which God was going to put away the reign of sin and death and darkness and bring in uh, light and life and hope and purity. That's, that's the mission that Jesus was on. He knew it. He knew, I'm sent by God. I'm on a mission here. He's here to bring about the eternal rescuing work that God had done. Jesus knew his purpose. He knew his mission. In fact, there's a great story about Jesus. He had just started early on in the Gospels. He'd started doing some healings, uh, his teaching, confronting evil spirits. He's growing a crowd. People are excited. His disciples are like, this is it. We got the right horse. We're back in the right party. Everything's going to move the way we want it to. Jesus is going to keep this big crowd growing. And Jesus goes away by himself up in the hills and prays. The disciples are a bit incredulous. Like, right, like almost like a parent finding their kid is how they saw themselves. Jesus was getting it wrong. We got it right. Where are you? What are you doing? Everything, they're waiting for you down here. Why aren't you there? We had to find you and bring you back. And Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. Yeah, there's a big crowd down there. And yeah, they're excited about me. But I need to go to the other little villages and tell them about God's kingdom and about who I am. And then he says this great phrase, because that's why I came. 
when you understand your mission, when you understand your purpose, that you have been commissioned to continue Jesus' work of bringing words of healing and forgiveness and grace and redemption into this creation that's gone amok, when you get that, then you can have the power to say no to stuff like Jesus did. Stuff that looks good, but not, might not be what's on mission for you, right? We all have a mission. We are to be part of God's outworking of what's called flourishing, of shalom, of bringing about the fullness and wholeness of life, right? We have a deep calling within us to serve God. So let me, let me ask you another, another set of questions here. Because it might be a little bit more challenging than you think. Jesus knew he was one who was sent by God. So let me ask you this. When you think of yourself as a Christian, do you think of yourself as this? And listen to the words carefully. Do you ever say this phrase to yourself? Well, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Right? If I were to say, do you think of yourself as a sinner saved by grace, hopefully you would say yes. <laughs> and that's true. But if you think you're only a sinner saved by grace... You're missing the second half of the gospel. You've got an impotent understanding of faith because it'll lack power. You are not only a sinner saved by grace. That's not the only thing the Bible has to say about you. You get a designation put on top of you that is even more powerful. That's humbling. We need that. Otherwise, we become self-righteous, not nice people in the world. We need to know we're saved by grace. But you also need to know you are a saint someone who has been set apart by God, you are a saint sent to bring about God's redemptive work in the world. Do you believe that about yourself? Because it's true. Paul writes his letters to churches, he calls them saints. <laughs> it's not because your behavior is excellent, it's because God has given you a mission to go be about bringing his shalom, his flourishing into the world. Yes, we are all sinners saved by grace, and yes, we need to know that. But maybe, maybe you need to drum into your head, you're a saint who has been set apart to serve God in the place you are right now. Exact place you are is the exact place you get to work at being a saint sent to serve the living king of the universe. So, our last thought, what you need to know. An active, ongoing, front-of-the-mind awareness about your destination. Jesus knowing he was going back to God. He knew he was sent from God. He knew he was going back to God. Right? There is immense freedom when you realize your final destination. <laughs> right? It, it's huge. And I got to tell you that this is one of the areas where my heart kind of gets heavy as a, as a teacher. Uh, it was heavy when I was a pastor in a college town. Because I think there's a cloud, a, a, a grayness, a darkness, a gloom that seems to be spreading the more that secular materialism gets kind of infused into people's thinking. If you don't know what secular materialism is, it's a worldview that says all that is, is time, energy, and matter. That's it. There's nothing else. Every answer you want can be found in science. And all that there is is what is, is right here. No eternal, no spiritual right? No supernatural. And I would say no hope. And the thing with kids, with youth, is they're smart. They're savvy. They get it and they feel it. They understand that if that's true, we are electrified pieces of meat. 
Your emotions are simply chemical reactions. Your choice of will is simply the random, it's the effect of previous causes. Atoms collided somewhere a millennia ago and now you're doing what you're doing. It means there's no right and no wrong other than what you might think is right or wrong. But the only reason you think it's right or wrong is because you happen to have some chemical reaction going off in your brain that was previously caused by something else. There's no hope in it. There's no wonder that they start feeling incredibly depressed and anxious. And if something goes wrong and it steals the joy of that moment, what, what else do they got but that moment? They've got eternity. They just don't hear it. They don't know it. And I understand that just because I want something to be true, right? We may want it to be true that there's something beyond just this. We aren't going to end up just being fertilizer for whatever comes next or a cosmic piece of dust in a universe that's going to implode or explode or something. There's more to that. You know what? There's eternity with God. And I want it to be true, but I know it's true. And the reason I know it's true is not because I wish it to be true. It's because Jesus is not in a tomb. There is a historical fact of Jesus' resurrection that becomes the foundation of a hope that there is meaning in life vastly beyond whatever secular materialism may try and promise. There is an eternity. There is a destiny. There is a time when Jesus will wipe away tears. There is a time. Yes, life sucks sometimes, absolutely. But you know what? There will be a time when it doesn't. There will be a time when the brokenness is mended, the lost are found, the earth is renewed, and this incredible thing is going to happen. It's, right? And Jesus knew that. So he could sacrifice things now because of what's out there in front of us. There's a phrase that, that it's always bugged me. You don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I get the gist of it. But I would probably say, at least from what I saw with Jesus, Jesus was so heavenly minded he was earthly good maybe our problem is that we're so earthly minded we're no heavenly good right there it is Jesus knew his situation Jesus knew his position Jesus knew his commission Jesus knew his destination I don't know if if maybe some of this spoke to you but I do know that to the extent Jesus could see clearly is the extent that he could serve deeply. And I know that every one of us has a where and a who. Where has God put you that you need to serve deeply? Where has God put you that you need to think about who you are so you can serve in that space deeply? And I'm going to pray, and I want you to think about this question too. Whose feet is God asking you to wash? Just remember, he washed Judah's feet. Where is it that God's asking you to step up as a servant? And whose feet is God asking you to wash? Lord, I pray that you would help us. Because it's so easy to forget who we are. It's so easy to hear the other voices, to be distracted by our culture, to be, to be confused. And yet your still small voice goes out. So Father, I would just pray that now through the work of your spirit, you would speak your word to your people. And that you would give a vision to them. 
of who you want them to be, who they are, and what you're calling them to do to serve you in this world, that others might see Jesus through us. In your name we pray, amen.